Heavenly Father, innumerable things that uh, I guess we were thinking about uh, doing this evening that we could perhaps be relaxing at home, we could do uh, watch the television, we could be getting ready for the week ahead, but there is no better place to be uh, in that we sit here now under the authority of your word and therefore under you. And we pray that as we look at this passage it would uh, inspire us, uh, it would help us realise more and more the cost of what Jesus achieved for us on the cross. But it would draw us to heartfelt, committed service of him. We ask that for his glory alone. Amen. <coughs> A little outline on the back, uh, if you want to follow with that. Um, please do, that would be very helpful, I'm sure. I speak at a... Uh, a uh, little youth conference uh, each summer. We get it, you know, five, six hundred young people uh, who are eager to have the Bible taught to them uh, each summer up in Keswick. A few years back, I was teaching in my small group in the, in the morning, a few boys. And um, one of the boys, happened to be American, came to see me and he said, is it, is it okay if my dad um, comes along uh, to, the, to the talk tonight? I'd really like um, him to come and hear you speak. And I thinking nothing of it, just said, absolutely, no problem, that would be great. And uh, that evening came, and over dinner, just before um, we were about to go down to the tent where I'd be speaking and so on, so one of the team kind of sidled up to me and said, is it right that that boy in your group, his dad's coming to uh, hear the talk tonight? And I, I said, yeah, it seems to be fine in my book. And he said, D- do you know who his dad is? And I went, no, no, just completely ignorant of the fact said, his dad is Don Carson. Now, you, some of you might not know who Don Carson is, but unbeknownst to me, I've been basically teaching in my small group the son of probably the most influential and brilliant theologian of our time. And um, Professor Don Carson was coming to hear me in a very poorly prepared talk in a very cold tent in Keswick with pouring down rain that evening. And I put my apple crumble down, I did, that's rare for me, and... Uh, <laughs> Off I ran to my room and sort of looked over my notes and nearly tore them up in despair, thinking, oh my goodness, I'm so poorly prepared for this. I thought jumping in a bus and ending up in hospital would be less painful experience that evening, just humiliating myself in front of the most brilliant theologian I knew of. was not something I was really looking forward to. And I do remember speaking that night. Well, actually, I don't remember much of what I said that night. It was very forgettable. But I have to say... With such a, an amazing man, such a qualified witness before me, I, it really, really acted as such an inspiration. Uh, it helped me raise my game. My concentration levels were so much higher, unlike now. You're no Don Carson. There we go. It's so motivating though, isn't it? And it's like that in many areas of our life. Whether, you know, if you're CEO, your MD or whatever, law partner, head teacher, whoever it is at the top of the chain comes in and looks and observes your work, you're really on the ball, aren't you? It's very motivating. It's true in the realm of sport. I remember when I was a teacher, actually. Um, I was uh, coaching tennis to some of the boys. And uh, my boys are actually quite good. They're 14, 15-year-olds. Got to the national finals a number of times. We never won, but we got to the national finals, which is good. And uh, there we were, Telford Tennis Centre, and uh, I was warming the boys up. 
And as you are as a teacher, you're pretty nonchalant about it. You know, it's, oh, it's only boys just knocking the ball back. Very lazy shots, and here we go. And my boys are kind of warming up pretty well. And then suddenly I notice on the gallery above us a man called Tim Henman, um, who was watching me play tennis badly. <laughs> <clears throat> now I have to say, up to that point, very lazy, very nonchalant sort of shots being played. And then suddenly at that point, I became the most focused tennis player you'll ever see in your life. And shots became well-planned and well-executed, as much as a very, very average tennis player in front of the world number four at the time can be. It was quite embarrassing, it has to be said. But the 14-year-old boys at the other side of the net, they weren't getting the best warm-up, as you can imagine. I was running them ragged around the court. It's no wonder we never won the national finals. But I tell you, that experience was utterly inspiring. I suddenly became the most intense tennis player you've ever seen. Why? I was elevated by this great witness. And it's like that for all of us in our sports, our places of work, even in life. If there's a great witness to see uh, what you're doing, uh, it raises your game, it elevates you, it inspires you, it motivates you. Oh, but these silly examples are nothing, are they, in comparison to the great cloud of witnesses we've seen in Hebrews 11. Uh, And there the writer describes these witnesses that surround this church that is being written to. And he includes, the writer includes himself in that. He says, we are surrounded, he says. Which includes, I guess, us as well. And this is an exhortation, it's an encouragement uh, to keep going in the race of the Christian life. Where we know that the the writer who's writing to this small church, they were struggling, they were facing pressures and persecution. And what's the struggle met with? This great motivation and inspiration of this cloud, this great cloud of witnesses. And we've seen what they are, the little introductory point there, the great cloud of witnesses. We've seen them, haven't we? Abraham and Moses and Rahab and Gideon and don't forget the prophets and then also um, great King David as well. And obviously they're not there now physically watching us as, as we are, but we have the accounts of their lives. So these runners uh, in in this struggling small church, what are they doing? They can recall from the word of God uh, and also in history and see the testimony of lives of these heroes of the faith and they can draw strength from them. Now the scene, as we've seen already, is uh, of a long distance race and the, the great cloud of witnesses are watching us in this race. As they would, I suppose, in a stadium. That's the language being used. I suppose the Colosseum came to mind now, but then, but probably now it's the Olympic Stadium in the East End and so on. But Christians are running the race of their lives before and toward God. And sometimes things are going well, aren't they? And the race, this Christian life that we lead, is a delight. It's a great pleasure. And this race is easy. But of course, sometimes we face trials, don't we? We struggle with all sorts of pain and and suffering in this race. And sometimes, I guess, we're in this race and we just want to give up. And I showed you, as I showed you last week, sometimes we're just tempted to shrink back. But the stadium of our lives that, that we run in is packed with this great cloud, a crowd of witnesses. And they're crying out to you and me, 
We did it. And therefore, so can you. And they are witnesses of that fact. And if you're a Christian, uh, then you're in this race. And as Christians, we'll be concerned about how we go about this race. We want to do our best, but we worry that we might mess up, that we might shrink back as the warning in 1039 is. So the writer here in these just brilliant few verses gives us, I think, four... Let's give it in the athletic uh, metaphor again. It's kind of training tips, aren't they? To keep us going toward our eternal home. And they come in the four imperatives of the passage. So we'll see that we need to throw off, that we need to run the race, that we need to fix our eyes, and we need to consider him. Let's go through those, um, each of them in turn. So firstly, let us throw off everything that hinders. Now, if you were an ancient long-distance runner, uh, in ancient kind of Roman times, they actually stripped off everything when they, were, when they went on their long-distance runs because they didn't want anything to hinder them in order to win the race. Oh, I guess you get a bit of that today, don't you, with all this, the sports garb and lycra that Rob was talking about. You know, as runners run and cyclists seem to shave every hair of their body in order to streamline themselves, to, to get to, to win the race and so on. And the call for us is to throw off everything that hinders our race to glory with God. And that throw off word, it, it's not just a, well, let's place to one side for a moment and then bring it in when we feel that suits. It's rather... It's pretty meticulous, and it's pretty aggressive too. Throw it off. That was a gentle throw, but you know what I mean. And specifically we see the sin that so easily entangles. And that really describes one of the realities of sin, doesn't it? The entangling nature of it. It kind of ties us up. It begins to suck the life out of us really, doesn't it? Uh, we've got a lovely little illustration in nature, haven't we, of the... That Venus flytrap plant thing that, you know, it looks so beautiful, doesn't it, to the fly and whose nectar is so sweet that as the fly comes down and begins to suck it out and enjoy it, all that kind of nectar sweetness from the petals, it, it becomes intoxicated and, and therefore not understanding the danger that it's in, this little fly thing. And then suddenly the flower closes, bang, and it's all over. And about two hours later, apparently, the little flower undoes, and comes undone. And all you see is the sort of shriveled, empty uh, kind of frame of what was a fly. Simply, it has the life sucked out of it. In the uh, English Standard Version of this uh, verse, this verse literally reads, uh, let every weight, um, lay aside every weight, and, and the thing which clings so closely. They've taken that from probably some of the older translations of the Bible that we have, which said um, it's the besetting sins that cling, entangle. That is sin that you know, we just can't seem to get rid of in our lives. So we start something that we know to be sinful, whether it be a thought or an action, and it seems to cling. We can't get rid of it. It's so intoxicating, like the fly on the plant, that we just become immune to its danger. But the danger is the cost of our eternal lives. So sin clings, it entangles, it besets us. But notice the, the singular use of the word sin there. It's, 
Let us throw off everything that hinders, and the sin, the sin that so easily entangles. And I think the writer is pointing out there that all of our sin is, is specific and in, in, individual to ourselves. So what entangles you may not entangle me, and vice versa. Well, sexual sin might be an issue for some of us, um, but money and anger and all those other kind of sins that we know about might be issues for the rest of us. So we need to be honest, don't we? What's the sin that entangles? I know mine. Do you know yours? I guess you do. I mean, money may be the, the nectar that intoxicates you. Uh, it beguiles you into thinking that you, you can define your life and your dreams if you just have that bit extra. So you're willing to sacrifice everything in order to get it. Now the point is, whatever the entangling sin, throw it off. Get rid of it. Or as Paul said to the church in Colossae, didn't he? Put it to death. Chapter 3, verse 5. Entangling sin is the specific warning, but do you see the subtle one? It comes first, actually. Um, in, in that we're to throw off everything that hinders, it says there. It, it literally, as I showed you in the English Sunday version, it's, it's a weight in our lives. The thing that will slow you down in this race, and if it continues to hinder you, will bring you to a standstill, which means you'll never finish. You'll never reach glory. And this hindrance or weight is not necessarily sinful. Uh, it could just be something that slows you down, weighs you down. It could be a leisure pursuit that you occupy so much of your time in, it becomes a hindrance to your race. It could be a relationship could be a job, in fact. could even be a place, couldn't it? That By association, you've been to that place. And it, it might just cause so much anger in you that it becomes sinful. Or it might be something that it causes you to lust because it reminds you of things that you've done in that place. It can be all sorts of hindrances, all sorts of weights. And it brings back unhelpful memories and therefore sinful weight in your life. We need to throw these off, the writer's saying. See, if we're to finish this race to glory, to become part of the great cloud of witnesses, we have to strip everything off. Uh, throw off every hindrance and every sin that entangles, and you know what they are. That great cloud of witnesses are looking at us now, and I know what we're all thinking, because I've been thinking it all week. Shall I? Shall I really bother? Shall I really bother to do all that energy to throw things off? Or shall I just leave things as they are? Because it's quite nice and comfortable. And every one of those faithful witnesses is nodding right now and saying, you have to do it. You've got to do it. Throw it off. I think all too often we sadly think, well, I, I like the thrill of that, that kind of chase of the money or, or the, the love of it. And I love that bit of Sexual sin, no one really knows about it, and it's just me, not really hurting anyone. And I think what you'll see from this passage is get rid of it, throw it off. You see, you're not going to finish the race, are you, if you keep hold of that hindrance or that entangling sin. Now, each of these imperatives, as we go through, assumes the best of each of us, it assumes that we listen and obey God's word. So you see, the first one says, you know, throw off the hindrance and the sin, and now you begin to freely run. So let's go to the second one. 
Uh, you see halfway through that, ver- the end of verse 1, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. So to our second point, let us run the race marked out for us. I don't know if, you, if, you, if any of you have ever run the London Marathon. I, I love to. I'm not that able. So I, I like watching it on TV. The music's very stirring, isn't it? But you'll see that it, when you watch the London Marathon, th- there's a line painted on the road. I think it's a blue line, isn't it, that all the runners... Follow, And if you run uh, along that line, you run exactly the length of a marathon. Uh, I suppose the line is there to, to create a uniformity within that race. And that's what we think of, isn't it, when we think of a race. We think of a single course, each runner following a single line. But notice in this verse that each, will, each of us have a race well, that is marked out for us. And some of us may have races, as in we might live a Christian life that is incredibly easy in comparison to many of this world. In a sense, to use the metaphor, that the race will be flat, it will be easy, there won't be any undulations or twists and turns, and the conditions will be perfect, not too hot, scorching heat, not too much wind and all that kind of stuff. Everything is pretty easy for us. But I guess others of us, and others around the world will endure an uphill struggle the whole way. And there'll be twists and there'll be turns and there'll be scorching heat. And sometimes the wind feels so strong that it breaks your stride and you just can't move forward, you feel like. But the point is, however long and however tough the race may be, it's marked out for you. I mean, I can't finish your race and you can't finish mine. Uh, But by God's grace, if you're wise, and if we listen to God's word and hear his voice and we're obedient to it, then we will hear these training tips for this race. And do you see the training tip here? It says we're to run with perseverance. So let's run the race marked out for us, with perseverance. In my uh, first job, I was going into a little uh, school uh, whilst I was at university, just finishing off to earn a bit of money. I love programming school, great school. And um, <clears throat> I was teaching this class of young boys for about half a term, swimming. And uh, most of the boys, excellent swimmers. And uh, one boy, I think, had recently moved across from some Middle Eastern country. And he'd never been given the opportunity to swim in that culture, so he was very new to things. And the previous uh, you know, numbers of weeks, um, I'd been teaching him all sorts of technique, and uh, he was definitely fit enough. He was a very able young uh, sportsman, but just not at swimming. There was no sense hindrance to slow him down. Uh, but the challenge I'd given him, if you like, his race was one length. That was the end. But we'll get to the end of the half time. You're going to do one length. And he was very nervous about this, and rightly so, because he was rubbish. Um, but at the end of the last lesson of that half term, I, I took him down to the, the deep end of the pool, and um, I didn't push him in, but it wasn't far off. And he, he kind of got in, and I kind of kicked his hands away, and sort of told, no, uh, and I said, I wasn't that bad. Um, I said, swim, off you go, off you go. He knew everything he needed. And remembering what he'd been taught, and seeing the race marked out for him, that, just that 25 meter length, he very, very slowly began to swim up that one length. And at times during that length, I was sort of walking on the side and I marked out a lane for him. I, I was very close to jumping in uh, and rescue him. I thought he was going to give in. I thought he was going to sink and drown. 
it's one of those Carpe Diem Dead Poet Society moments. If you haven't seen that film, just ask me later. It's a great film, if you've been a teacher. And uh, what, what happened was quite remarkable. Um, one of the other boys uh, of the class, they were all in the other part of the, um, the swimming pool, they noticed this kid was doing this, and they saw the grit and the determination and the persevering in his face as he was trying to get up this one length. And this one boy got out and joined me on the side, and I was kind of, you know, trying to encourage him and so on, and simply just started shouting and cheering for this lad in the pool. And I said, okay, yeah, that's fine. And then one after the other, the whole class got out and lined this whole side of the pool and started shouting and jeering at this child, saying, come on, keep going, keep going, keep going. And stroke by stroke, nearly drowning on every single one, he got to the end of the race and he persevered. Now, I remember the face of one boy in that whole school. It's a remarkably good sports school of which I coached a number of kids to national level. But I remember one face. I don't remember his name, actually, but I remember the one face. Now, he was probably the worst swimmer that I've ever taught in the whole of my swimming teaching uh, time. But he knew what it was to persevere. It's such a, a wonderful quality. Well, he swam and finished his race and he pushed through all sorts of things of fear and of pain and he endured and he persevered. And of course, that's exactly what we have to do, isn't it? And it's not just for a length, to use that metaphor. It's, we're swimming the race of a life, if you like. And, the, and in this lifelong race that we're in toward glory, there is this great crowd of witnesses lining the side of our pool, shouting and cheering you on. And they say, you can do it. Keep going. Persevere. So you've thrown off every hindrance to sin that so easily entangles and you're in this race to glory, to be with God face to face. And you're persevering, however tough it may be. But we are so easily distracted, aren't we? As we run as Christians in this life. So to the next imperative, uh, this next uh, training instruction, perhaps the most important of all, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Look at verse 2 with me. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the instruction is, is fix, or literally focus, on who? Well, we've got this whole crowd of witnesses cheering us on, faithful witness, and they, they can supply all the, an abundance of encouragement and incentive. But in one man, we have the faithful witness. Beyond all, and it is Jesus. It's not Jesus Christ, notice that. I think the writer is pointing you there to the, the perfect life uh, of the, the man, the Son of God, lived out in the man of Jesus. That's what he's pointing you towards. Well, why fix our eyes on Jesus? In this race of faith that finishes in the place of the faithful, that is glory. Uh, he wants us to fix on him because, as he says, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. The beginning end, or the, the pioneer of our faith, and the finisher, completer. So the author and perfecter of our faith. See, uh, we can arrogantly think that, that we're the ones that begin this faith run to, to glory, don't we? And that we instigate our faith in the promises of God that bring salvation. That somehow are doing. But of course, 
We do have to make a decision. We need to turn from our old ways toward God in faith. But as Paul says to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2 verse 8, that is, that is a gift. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith and not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Now Jesus is the author of our faith and it is an undeserved gift of grace. And it was given as Jesus. It was bought as Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame as we see in that verse. So that we did not have to bear that punishment. So that we might know forgiveness and eternal life. So we see the gift of faith. But he can, he can author and begin our race of faith because he is the resurrected and vindicated one, as you see at the end of that verse. That is, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And in so doing, he authors our faith because he's the one that blazes a trail to glory. In a sense, the, the finish line is established in him being resurrected. He authors and pioneers this race that we might run this Christian life that we live. But we also see he's the perfecter of our faith too. He's the perfecter because he's the one who lived the perfect life of faith. Always obedient to the promises of his father. Even, as we've seen as we study Mark's gospel, even in the pain of the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will but yours. That's perfect faith. Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, obedient to the Father. And so we read back in Hebrews chapter 2, actually, verse 8. The author of salvation is made perfect through suffering. Therefore, if we are in him, if we have relationship in him, if we keep our eyes fixed on him in this race, he is the one who's made perfect in his suffering. And therefore, he is the one who will perfect our faith. Through his substitutionary death on the cross. And therefore bring us to God. Just before we move on to the, the last training instruction. Last imperative. Just look at the attitude of Jesus. I think this is really helpful. In this verse. Because I think some of us are in this Christian life. And we are trusting in Jesus. But we do it with such a grimace on our, faith, on our faces. I think we're going about it the wrong way. See, You see there. For, for, um, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the joy in all that suffering? Well, it's being seated at the right hand of God. It's that glory. And that is why he could go through the enduring pain of the cross and the, the shame. Because he, his eyes were fixed on the glory to come. And that meant his race was one of joy. Of course, there was still pain and there was still shame and all that suffering going on. But there was still this underpinning joy of the hope of glory to come. And whatever the race that we're running is marked out for us, whatever is in that race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author... And also the one who perfects our faith is utterly essential. And keeping our gaze on Jesus will allow us, even in the most difficult twists and turns of the race that we're running to glory, it will help us have that underpinning joy founded in the hope that we're looking forward to, to meet Christ face to face. 
So lastly and briefly, the fourth imperative, the fourth instruction. Consider Jesus. Verse 3, if you can follow with me. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The word consider here, I mean, for all you mathematicians and so on, it is a mathematical term, and we get our word logarithm from this word. Uh, so it's logizomai, and it, it basically kind of calculates or compute that kind of terminology, systematically assess Jesus. Consider Jesus, and what it says, all the opposition that Jesus faced from a whole catalogue of people, even from his family, as you see in Mark, I think it's chapter 4, isn't it, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in the later chapters 6 and 7 in Mark, and you've been looking at those, even his disciples at points, and Pilate later on, and the fickle crowds, all this opposition, and latest of all, the Roman soldiers, as they hammered nails into his hands and his feet. Consider him in all that suffering. Why? Well, the language used is, again, it's very common athletic, I'm sorry about all this sporting analogy, but it's not my fault, it's the Bible's fault, it's all sporting, I can't help it. Anyway, it's very normal language of a long-distance race. And because competitors in those races, in the scorching heat, it was very normal for them to collapse, uh, to pass out in the heat and even die. So we consider Jesus in, in all his suffering, uh, and we think through what he has done. Why? So that we might not grow weary and lose heart. And he's saying that the considering is, is, is transfixing your mind and your heart on Jesus to understand him. Uh, you know, not to bring him out on a Sunday and kind of play friend at that moment. Yeah. I think in our conservative Britishness, I think we've, we can so easily despise that passion and that passionate devotion, that clear understanding, that heartfelt, determined running. I think we can sometimes say that. That's a bit too zealous, isn't it? I don't think the Bible has a category for that. Consider Jesus. Keep him at the forefront of your heart and your mind. Why? Well, because it is the only way, the only way, that you will not collapse and pass out on this race, especially with the heat of London life. If you are a Christian here today, then you are in this race. If you are not in this race, can I implore you to just look what you're missing out on? I implore you to consider Jesus. Many of us are in this race, though. And as we run, remember this. You've got sat in the stadium of your life, to use this image, this great cloud of witnesses. Who have we seen? We've seen Abraham, we've seen Moses and Gideon and uh, Rahab. We've gone through prophets of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Isaiah, Jeremiah. We've seen the martyrs of the early church right back to the Eliezer and his boys and probably Stephen is in their mind as well from Acts 7 and 8 and I'm sure Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, is in their minds. And for us, well, I've got those great reformers of Ridley and Latimer and some of the great preachers of Whitfield and Wesley and Spurgeon. And I've got missionaries that I've been reading about of you know, Studd and Taylor and Carmichael, they're all there. The great cloud of witnesses. And I suppose some of us have got the privilege of having family members as well in that great cloud of witnesses as well. And I think of my 
grandparents of Fred and Iris Cochrane, that's their name, and they'll be there in that great cloud. And, and I guess what they say, they're looking down, aren't they, and they're calling out to each of us as we're struggling, in, perhaps in our lives in London or, or relationships and whatever it may be, and they're just shouting, you can do it, guys, you can do it. Is your pulse rate up? Well, it should be, because you're running a race, for goodness sake. Uh, And we want to finish, so what do we need to do? Let's just think back. We need to throw off everything that hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles, that's probably just sucking the life and energy out of you right now. And if you don't do it, you're going to struggle to finish. And we need to get your head up and begin to run the race. It might be painful stride after painful stride. And you might even cross the line utterly uh, exhausted or in a wheelchair, crippled. Whatever you do, you cross the line. Persevere. Thirdly, fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on him. He starts and secures a place in the race to the finish. And finally, look to the finish line because there you'll see Jesus. And essentially, he's got the finishing tape round his ankles. Because he's the one that's won the race. But don't take your eyes off him. Just him. And if we do, then we'll finish the race. We'll receive the prize. The crown of glory. The eternal crown of glory. And as a result, God will be glorified. Amen.